Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist, a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and uh, expert on all things American politics, which is what we talked about today. We spoke about the fallout from the uh, the Dobbs decision, how the uh, American right feel about pronatalist policy, and also uh, the figure of Donald Trump and the extent to which he represents a new post-Christian right that is emerging in America. We spoke in the extended version even more about the new right and particularly about the new right's relationship to women and uh, the misogynist streak that is uh, may cause some problems in terms of attracting female support. That extended version of the episode is available at louiseperry.substack.com where you can also find the whole back catalogue of extended episodes, the bonus episodes I do fortnightly with my husband and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Emily, can we start by talking about abortion? Because you 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 wrote a really interesting piece last year, actually, when the Dobbs judgment was leaked about um, class and abortion, and about these slightly unexpected um, relationship between income and attitudes towards abortion. Because the big one of the big arguments against Dobbs was from from pro, from the pro choice position was that it would mean that poor women poor women are more likely to get abortions poor women are more likely to therefore have to travel out of state in order to access abortion this was an assault on poor women essentially but you um wrote a very interesting piece about what like what poor women actually think about abortion in general yeah the media the intersection of media and class is something that i'm increasingly interested in because um it's one of the things that actually got me interested in media in the first place not that i I grew up you know, pretty middle class, like normal upper middle class, if anything. Uh, but you just being in a you know, outside of a major city, I grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, uh, about 40 minutes outside Milwaukee and seeing the way that Hollywood and journalists, especially depicted Christian conservative gun owners and all of that is actually one of the things that made me want to go to DC and post Trump, this has just been on display every single day. And I think it was on display um, after the Dobbs decision was leaked because the left has tried to own this argument that it's the right that has some sort of blind spot on class when it comes to abortion. But whenever the left represents the sort of working class position on abortion, uh, they actually give very little representation to the fact that support for abortion declines as your annual economic station declines. So as income declines, Mm -hmm. so too does support for abortion. And that's for all kinds of reasons. Um, Religion is one of the biggest parts of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's true that you know, poor women are most likely to find themselves in these positions. Um, And, you know, that's obviously creates blind spots just in terms of like, there aren't a lot of journalists who have ever lived off of food stamps or welfare or have, you know, endured poverty. That's absolutely true. Um, There are fewer journalists that have uh, been in a position where they had to, they felt like they had to get an abortion because they couldn't pay for a child that they really wanted. That's a, a very different experience than, you know, being 22 and saying, I don't want this child. 
um, which is a position that a lot of sort of upper middle class journalists find themselves in or upper class journalists find themselves in. And I think that really affects the way people look at the issue. And it does. I mean, when we look at polling, it absolutely does. So it's frustrating to watch the media, um, I think, kind of launder its opposition or its support for abortion um, as the position of the or, or as something that is solidarity with the working class or, or with middle America or with people in, in inner cities when actually it's not true. <laughs> they, they tend to be in bubbles that are more supportive of abortion. Uh, and also there's just a very different experience. Even if you are someone who's, who's had an abortion, supports generally the right, for, the right to get an abortion, people's experiences with abortion are completely different uh, based on class. And so it's, it's a blind spot, but it's one of the more frustrating blind spots because it's one that's treated uh, like the opposite of a blind spot, like something that's hyper aware and conscious of class when actually it's just as ignorant as, as basically every other position the media has uh, from a class perspective. So is it simultaneously true that poorer women are more likely to to have abortions, but also more likely to oppose abortion on moral grounds? Right. I think I, th- yeah. I think that's broadly true. And the support for abortion is so hard to nail down in polling because mm. uh people calling themselves pro-choice versus pro-life is different than people supporting late-term abortion. And it's different than people Mm -hmm. supporting really early, you know, before 12, abortion before 12 weeks, which most of America um, supports abortion up until, I don't know, roughly like 12 weeks. And then it gets a little different uh, as you approach 20 weeks. And then most of the country does not support it basically after that third trimester abortion. So it always depends on the way it's asked. And it always depends on uh, how we're kind of defining the terms. But I think broadly, it's true that yes, um, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to oppose abortion, but also the more likely you are to have found yourself in uh, a situation where you're trying to access abortion. I once read this study, that I can't remember exactly um, the, the authors or data or anything, but um, I think this holds true um, in both Britain and America, that poorer women are more likely to, uh, to have an unwanted pregnancy because they use contraception less often and less well. Richer women are less likely to have an unwanted pregnancy because they use contraception more frequently and more effectively. But when they get pregnant and they don't want to be, rich women are more likely to get abortions. Poor women are more likely to keep the baby. And I don't know if that's because of different moral attitudes towards abortion, possibly, given what you're saying. It may also be that the opportunity costs in terms of income from having, and in terms of career progression, from having an, a, a baby, you know, too young for a richer woman are more profound. So it's she's more motivated to end the pregnancy or, I don't know, seeking out abortion services requires more, I don't know, there, there seems like there seems like a whole, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the kind of abortion and class and income uh, nexus. I think that's exactly right. And in the States, we have a huge class in, uh, lower income brackets of very religious Hispanics, uh, for example, mm. Catholics, faithful Catholics, for whom um, abortion is really not an option. Uh, so there's there's that, and we also have uh, you know the 
people in uh, our inner cities, whether they're Hispanic, whether they're black or people in rural areas, maybe who are in Appalachia and are white for whom abortion is also in many cases, very taboo, not an option is out of line with their uh, religiosity. Uh, so there's, there's definitely an element of that, but also I think your point about careerism is hugely important um, that, you know, if, if you are a upper middle-class educated woman, who's uh, sort of entrance into the working world uh, was facilitated by the filter of higher education and you went through you know all of the women's studies classes and the sort of social conditioning about when it's appropriate to have children and you know you've sort of been uh, really conditioned to overcome a lot of the feminine uh, in that in the way that you've written really beautifully about um, overcome not just the feminine but almost the human then yes you're you're sort of very averse to this idea in your 20s when you're probably having a lot of uh, sex and well, I guess if not, if you're Gen Z, but <laughs> and maybe before <laughs> that, that. Yeah, maybe yeah. before that, uh, when at least a, a section of young women are having a lot of sex and in a lot of cases it's unprotected, you're, you're probably also going to be more averse to having a baby for career reasons and for just the reasons of social conditioning. Um, and as we see, more affluent countries are having lower birth rates. There's basically very few exceptions to that, and it's a very hard trend to reverse. For all kinds of reasons, again, that you've written about. But I, I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, you know, there are a, a lot of women tend to be more religious and at least more traditional, um, the lower you go down sort of socioeconomic brackets and they, they want those kids. And some of the most heartbreaking stories are um, of, of women who regret abortions uh, that they got because they, they couldn't pay for a baby. And that's a facet of, well, look, a criticism sometimes made by the pro-choice side, let's say, in the pro I mean, it is worth reiterating what you mentioned earlier, that actually there's an, a remarkable degree of unanimity among American voters and indeed British voters on what abortion policy should be. Like, actually, the modal position is very widely held as basically before 12 weeks is okay, and then with some exceptions afterwards. You know, like, the pro-choice and pro-life positions are, 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 are quite small, extreme minorities on both sides. But one criticism may by the pro-choice side of the pro-life side is that people is that you've got a lot of say Christian conservatives who are very motivated to prevent abortions but then don't care a whole lot about the kids once they're born that's not true of of all pro-life advocates at all there is also a push to offer financial assistance to women who would otherwise um have abortions because they can't afford to have another child and so on because that is that is a, a Poverty is at least given as the primary reason for having an abortion in an enormous number of cases in the States, right? Yeah. And I think pro-life people like myself, you know, obviously, I actually think this was kind of a blind spot for the conservative movement for a while because you sort of look at the culture and say, it is shocking that we are in a position culturally um, especially if you're coming from a, coming at it from a religious perspective, that we've become so numb to the level of death uh, that takes place in this country every year, um, you know, through abortion. And that's what's kind of the focus that like we actually want to take care of point A before point B, because point A is so shocking and uh, is, is such a sad statement on the culture. 
And then point B, which is a much more immediate material concern uh, for women who are seeking abortions every single day, uh, and maybe regretfully and hesitantly gets overlooked because point A, you feel so heavy and, and grave um, and you know immediate because it's severe that you just, you never think about point B. You're just too, you're too uh, focused on kind of the root problem, which is actually the opposite of how politics works a lot of times. Um, but it's, you've seen like Ron DeSantis, for example, like start to make uh, diapers. Uh, I think he's made them like refundable on taxes. And you've seen some like really innovative approaches to this post Dobbs that absolutely should have been a, a much bigger priority and focus of the conservative movement, and the pro-life movement pre Dobbs. Uh, and, and that is, you know, it's, it's actually hard. It's like, another really frustrating thing about being sort of on the right in America is that some of the stuff actually has been going on for years. There've been conversations about this going on for years on the right, but to penetrate the media bubble, you have to be so loud about some of this stuff. They're never going to cover uh, Republican politicians or uh, pro-life groups that are working to make babies more affordable because it's not even on their radar. I mean, me media doesn't pick those stories up and they certainly don't pick them up in a big headline type way um, unless you are really making it like the central focus and are blaring it from the rooftops and are putting lots of effort into public relations campaigns highlighting it. Uh, it'll just get left out of the narrative. It's not convenient for the narrative. It doesn't make it into the bubble anyway. So it has to be a bigger focus if you want to you know, convince people that you're uh, coming at this from a genuinely compassionate perspective. You have to do something major to, uh, I think, disrupt the broader me media narrative that it's a handmaid's tale situation about controlling women's bodies. And conservatives uh, who were interested in point B for a long time and were thinking about it didn't do enough to disrupt that narrative uh, and, and didn't do enough about point B anyway. So yeah, I, th I think there's a real problem. And it's, it's also frustrating because the sort of fusionist conservative movement that brought together the religious right with the neoconservatives and the um, small government kind of libertarian uh, conservatives really became uh, interested in prioritizing small government, limited government, I should say. Um, and that is difficult. Uh, like the, what Ron DeSantis did with diapers, for example, post-Dobbs, pre-Dobbs would have been a lot harder uh, because of the centrality of the limited government uh, plank in the modern conservative movement. Although is it, I mean, if, if, if what he was proposing was making them tax is, is giving tax exemptions. Mm -hmm. That's shouldn't that be permissible? That's not government handouts, right? That's letting parents keep their own money and spending it on their children. You'd think uh, one thing. You, uh, one interesting thing when you talk to people who are involved in uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. So, like one of the big legislative accomplishments of Donald Trump is they were working really hard. People in Senator Rubio's office, Senator Lee's office, to make. Uh, the child tax credit. They tried to double the child tax credit. They tried to um, make it uh, refundable on payroll tax, all of that stuff. Uh, it's sort of like nerdy, wonky stuff, but basically that would benefit the working class. It was a really uphill battle um, for them, and they didn't get everything that they wanted. Pre-Dobbs, is 2017, and it's still kind of unthinkable that Roe would ever fall at this point, uh, even that it's even it being so recent in our history because it's seen as kind of a, a government intervention uh, in the family life in the private sector. And I actually think that would be totally different now, but at least just five years ago, six years ago, uh, if you talk to those people, they'll 
give you war stories of having these conversations with other Senate offices and trying to convince them that it's a conservative thing. You know, if you're going to be giving tax uh, benefits, if you're writing into the tax code benefits for businesses, my goodness, like give a little bit something more to these parents. <laughs> I mean, I find that so peculiar because, I mean, not that we don't have the same issues here, I guess, but I mean, my 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 preference always when it comes to pronatalist uh, policy, and even though I know that this it works out pretty much the same for the recipients, but I would always rather have a tax cut rather than have a government handout because I do kind of agree with Reagan's thing about oh, yeah. I'm I'm from the governor I'm here to help you know I do have a suspicion of big government right I think I'm is like an essentially American aspect of my character which is slightly unexpected but I I think that this is parents money and they should get to keep it and they should get to spend it on their children that's I it, it seems to me that that should be something that people could come together and and agree on particularly on the right um that doesn't seem to be the case though i'm guessing it's partly because there's a deeper version to be seeing to pay the underclass to have children like that's a i think on i've i i read the daily mail comments on um any article about pronatalist policy and that's the thing that alarms some populist voters um maybe that's what it is although i don't think that is likely actually to happen with tax cuts because people pay more tax the more income they have so if anything you end up disproportionately benefiting and that's middle class and upper middle class parents that's why people were working really hard to make it payroll tax deductible because if you right yeah right it's just that's actually kind of interesting i mean i think a lot of it is this paranoia um that has been kind of ingrained in people's minds about you know that's private inter- or or an intervention in the the private business sector versus an intervention in the family life that this is something I actually think the new right gets wrong a lot of times. Um, and I'm still of two minds actually about child tax credits for this reason, that it gives the government leverage to, uh, you know, in the same way that you're asking the government to incentivize family creation and to incentivize uh, child rearing and to you know encourage people to have more kids they can use those levers they can say you know if you're right, going yeah. to be ta- if, if, if your child is going to qualify if your if your family qualifies for child tax credit um you know someday down the road they could say it only counts if they're vaccinated or it only counts yeah, if you subs- attend drag queen story hour once a month or whatever yeah, yeah. right and yeah. The, the parent i'm joking but i can i can see the reasoning there yeah and you never know what direction it goes in um at and and there's a lot of paranoia about that on the american right but there's also i think a lack of awareness on the new right that has pushed some government interventions at how plausible that is especially uh, in the aftermath of COVID and 2020, when we saw, you know, exactly how quickly things can go in a bad direction. Yes, I think, I think it is certainly true that, um, if there, yeah, if there's anything we've learned from maybe the last decade of um, political events is that it is definitely fighting culture war through apparently mundane policy is happens all the time <laughs> and one and it's completely possible to I had um Poppy Coburn on the podcast a little while ago who's a British journalist you may know um and we were we were discussing um some very obscure elements of um government policy relating to charities and how they have been used essentially for the British government to fund 
lobbying against the British government's interests, like at scale, like so many charities in the UK have been have, have basically been able to use a loophole which permits them to do political lobbying if and only if they're doing so on behalf of like oppressed groups. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they've done so with vigor. <laughs> we've ended up in this in this bizarre situation where it's impossible because oppressed groups is obviously it, the whole concept is a leftist concept. You can't apply that rule to say advocating on behalf of like I don't know the native population against immigration or taxpayers against I don't know like any kind of right wing cause. You can't possibly utilize that 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 rule. But the left have done an absolutely amazing job, to be fair to them, um, with organizing on that principle. And the British government is like stunned. <laughs> See, that's so interesting to me because one of the like I've been on this odyssey over the course of the last year, sort of reading a lot of Cold War history. And it's amazing how the presentism um, that we use to look back on the Cold War has enshrined as like the gospel that people were paranoid with no kind of rational understanding of the threat and when you sort of go back and you look i mean for like oppenheimer is a great example just like cavorting with soviet spies and then put in charge of the nuclear program like that's crazy and people had every right to be a little bit freaked out by it now it doesn't mean that they acted rationally in response but uh I think a lot of the stuff that was written in the early part of the 20th century responding to Lenin uh, and then to Stalin and to sort of these movements that were springing up around the world, were looking at like very clear blueprints to do exactly what you just described. And it's prescient when you look back on it, like the way that you know government was going to be leveraged to create um, this post-industrial utopia that stripped humans of agency and control. And we do see that sort of actually like creeping into, it's like we're the frogs in the boiling pot. Uh, and suddenly we wake up one day and it's like, oh, I guess, you know, this random piece of legislation that Richard Nixon signed is being used to make sure everybody gets a new vaccine within like a year. It was the OSHA um, that Richard Nixon signed that Biden cited his original vaccine mandate to. Um, and vaccine mandates are different than these other cultural things. But I think it was an example of how that can be used. And it's amazing the degree of uh, just back to your original question about why the right is resistant and for has for too long been resistant to kind of government intervention that might provide a safety net for women interested in abortions. There was this whole gargantuan infrastructure that sprung up uh, in response to the communist threat, but then also in uh, on the left, these like massive um, non-governmental infrastructures that sprung up in response to the Cold War threat that are now uh, kind of like just old and um, you know just these behemoths that still exist and have this muscle memory to freak out over absolutely everything that either smells of you know, government intervention or of the private sector. And this is where we see like kind of the realignment happening, like kind of Matt Taibbi's and, you know, all of these, these people sort of saying like, wait, this doesn't really, this old order doesn't really make sense anymore. The Marco Rubio's, this doesn't make sense. We have to rethink some of these things, but it's still hard to, uh, break the muscle memory that both the left and the right have in these like old hulking infrastructures in our political space. Let's talk more about the realignment. So tell tell me what you mean 
within the American context by the realignment and indeed the new right. Mm. This is nice, easy opening definitions. <laughs> well, it really started, I mean, it's it's as kind of straightforward as a lot of people think it is. It started with Donald Trump suddenly coming on the stage talking about immigration and trade and the media um, and winning margins that Republicans haven't won by in years, a lot of Obama voters in these hollowed out Rust Belt, you know, kind of the cliche states in the middle of the country, places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin. Um, you just saw Donald Trump putting numbers up that shocked people. Michigan, uh, nobody really saw it coming. Um, and he actually won a lot of former Obama voters that perhaps a 2007 version of Hillary Clinton won in the presidential primaries back in 2007 when she was doing her sort of Rust Belt working class blue collar Hillary act. And that uh, really was a wake up call for a lot of people on the right. Um, some of it's been cynical. Some of it's just been like, hey, we were pimping free market economics for years. And now we see where, you know, Trump voters are and we want to hop on the bandwagon. Uh, but we're not actually, when push comes to shove, going to want to do anything but cut taxes, all of that. Um, but what we've seen is uh, the conservative movement, much more than the progressive movement, be willing to have some of these conversations about what the, as, as a lot of people in the new right call it, con Inc., the sort of broader conservative movement, this constellation of nonprofit groups and media organizations. Uh, for example, Tucker Carlson just a couple of weeks ago came out and said he thought William F. Buckley had done a lot of evil. <laughs> That's like 10 years ago, if he had said that as a part of this constellation, he, he started the Daily Caller, um, would have been a shock to the system of the conservative movement, but was kind of just, uh, you know, everyone was sort of, sort of expects it from Tucker Carlson, who's, who's arguably the most popular person uh, on the new right and in the conservative movement more broadly right now. I mean, when nonprofit organizations have Tucker Carlson speak at a gala, those things are packed. Uh, it's probably the most like in-demand speaker in the conservative movement right now, a very powerful person who's going after the father of the conservative movement historically, which is William F. Buckley. And it's just expected at this point. That's kind of how serious the shock to the system has been. And obviously, I, I do think conservative infrastructure still is hulking and has this muscle memory. Uh, but, you know, in the span of four or five years, a lot of this has changed really quickly. And, and there's been a lot more attention paid to how conservatives can a appeal to and b better serve uh, middle class working class americans what were the blind spots how can they be corrected now um and this this conservative movement to its credit was on top of the culture war uh for for decades but the republican party was not and the conservative movement never convinced the republican party successfully to actually represent the cultural interests of its own base um you know, for example on the abortion issue one thing that uh, I remember, I, I was like on air when the Dobbs decision came down um, with my co-host Ryan Grimm, who's on the left, and a thing a lot of people on the left get wrong, I was like, there are a bunch of people at the RNC right now who are quaking in their boots, like the official Republican Party, who are terrified and upset at the Supreme Court for overturning Roe. And people who are, you know, in a position to know, uh, you know, people who were at the RNC at that time period have confirmed to me that that's exactly what happened. And it's not surprising to anybody who's followed the conservative movement closely. They just never convinced them to care about the cultural interests of their base. That changed in 2020. So as the economic stuff, trade, immigration was shifting, 2020 comes along and 
reinvigorates the conservative movement sort of culture war push. And that's all kind of what's in the mix right now as the right broadly kind of tries to figure out what it should be post-Trump. You see a lot of people on the left, you know, starting to uh, find common ground with people again, like Matt Taibbi uh, and figures of the left that they never would have found common ground with before. Uh, I don't think the left has absorbed those lessons, partially because their muscle memory is is almost firmer um, because they have the media to back them up. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of the weird stuff that's been going on since 2015. <laughs> yeah. So why would um, like establishment conservative figures have been have been upset by Dobbs because it because there was that like dog catching the car problem of like oh oh gosh now we actually have to legislate around this at the state level or 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 was there some other reason why that would have been actually unwelcome in more establishment circles they were totally right i mean they were they were right because their interests are power uh because they like mitch mcconnell is somebody who i think almost transparently thinks like this that if the Republican Party can consolidate power, almost like it's a game, um, if you can rack up the most points, you know, meaning the most seats and the most uh, success across the country just in elections, um, then you know ultimately everything can fall into place. And when your day-to-day is bogged down in fundraising and whipping votes, I think it's easy to see why he's, you know, after decades in the, the business, Uh, come down with that mindset. But if it's a question of, you know, consolidating power, then Dobbs was always going to be a disaster for the Republican Party. And I think we've seen that transpire over the last couple of years. We've seen that illustrated in elections across the last couple of years. And I don't think anybody in the pro-life movement is surprised by that. Um, I think, you know, they they realized that and knew right away they were going to have a huge lift when it came to messaging and elections. Uh, but the sort of Mitch McConnell establishment conservative Republicans at the RNC when Dobbs came down were right to say this is a huge impediment um, going forward, you know, towards our quest for power. Um, and it, they were right. Because it motivates a pro-choice lobby to push harder harder against republicans in particular seats or 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 or, i mean another question right i mean my my view on why abortion is important in american politics in particular is because it's basically indicative of christianity you know the christian position on abortion is a very clear one it's also a very unusual one among uh historically and among other religious traditions if you're you know basically if you're if if you're uh if you're restricting abortion then you're then you are insisting on the on the government being more christian and vice versa right so what you're really arguing about is basically whether america should continue to be a christian state and what's so interesting though in this whole thing is that donald trump who is indicative of the new right and is you know was instrumental in 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 dobbs he's not really a Christian figure at all. And he has, I, like, my understanding is that he has managed to harness the support of the Christian right, but it's a slightly fragile coalition because it's fairly apparent. I mean, hasn't he refused to answer the question of whether or not he's ever paid for an abortion? Mm. Because we all kind of assume the answer is yes. And he's refusing to answer questions right now about what his policy would be on a 15-week ban uh, or a six-week ban. Right. He says, we'll, we'll get to a solution that's good for everyone. <laughs> so how is he, is he, is it, 
is he playing like 4D chess with us? Does he know that actually he can get away with losing the support of, say, evangelical leaders? Or actually is he, I don't like, my question is basically, what proportion of voters on the right, particularly this kind of populist right MAGA base, actually care, actually are Christians and actually care about abortion on, like, in, as indicative of their Christian faith? Mm-hmm. It's a super interesting question. I think probably if I had to put a number on it, I would say of the, the Republican coalition, I would say is like 30% evangelical Christians or sort of fits the stereotype. It might even be less than that, 20 to 30% evangelical mm-hmm. Christian that fits the stereotype of charismatic um, and political in a way that a lot of the, the Protestant uh, churches in America aren't, you know, so overtly politicized, um, but like neatly fits into that. Probably another 20% is uh, Catholic, including a lot of Orthodox Catholics that are very um, serious about their anti-abortion stances. So I think what he knew uh, which is really interesting, is that people were so upset about the country in general that if he presented himself as the general bulwark against a secular cultural um, decline, sort of that slide into a, a an unfamiliar secular culture. And this is happening really fast in the West. Um, and, you know, there are people on the left and the right who speak to it, populists on the left and the right who speak to it, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's in Holland, whether it's in the US, whether it's, you know, in, in the UK. And I think yeah, he-, yeah. he re- It's a global vibe. It's a global vibe. You should write another book yeah. called Global Vibe. <laughs> Uh, but totally like in and Trump realized that if he could first and foremost, if he could say his first and foremost priority is stopping that um, and, and gave a little bit to the anti-abortion uh, part on the right, he realized that everyone's priority more than anything else. Uh, basically, every person who's anti-abortion is anti-abortion, to your point, because it's a proxy for this broader slide into secularism that terrifies a lot of people, whether they go to church every Sunday or not. Uh, if you talk to a lot of people at Trump rallies, they are not people. In fact, my old editor, Tim Carty, wrote a, a fascinating book called Alienated America, where he posited and then sort of successfully fleshed out this theory that in the Republican primary in 2015 and 2016, where people were more likely to support Donald Trump is where civil society was uh, less prominent. So if you're in this hollowed out bowling alone kind of thesis, it was totally a follow up to bowling alone and explicitly so. And if you went into uh, some of these, if you went into like Dutch communities in Wisconsin that were really tight knit, they were supporting Ted Cruz, Mormon communities in Salt Lake City uh, and in Utah. They were supporting Ted Cruz. It was the uh, sort of places in rural America where the pews are empty on Sundays and there are no bowling leagues that were way more likely to support Donald Trump. So if you talk to people at Trump rallies, you'll talk to a lot of people that don't go to church every Sunday uh, for many different reasons. But what they do sort of innately feel is that the, they're very upset about you know, sort of secular liberals and atheists and, and all of that because they recognize that this is about something deeper. So if you if you sort of appeal and say, we'll get you all the Supreme Court justices you want, you don't have to say, I'm going to have a six-week ban on abortion federally. And I think Donald Trump 
as a, a populist who came to this from outside the Republican Party, he knows that the pro-life position is broadly unpopular because of conditioning through, you know, Hollywood and, and all of that over the course of years. Um, and that's what freaked people out about Dobbs is that like, it's it's seen as kind of an icky religious position to be extremely anti-abortion. Donald Trump knew that. Um, so that's where he kind of understood better than a lot of people who had been in Republican politics and the conservative movement for decades coming from the outside as somebody who's on in, you know, somebody of popular culture of Hollywood. He had a hit TV show. He understood that better than I think the right ever did. Mm, it's his amazing talent, isn't it? As a public figure that he can sort of intuit the popular will. Totally. In a way that the vast majority of politicians can't do. And I mean, and to that, do you think that that suggests that, so my understanding, although you'll know better than me, is that, um, America has not slid towards secularism anywhere near as quickly as Britain and the rest of Europe, but it is sliding towards secular secularism nonetheless. And and devout Christians tend to be older, with some exceptions, of course. Younger generations coming up tend to be less pious. Do you think that Donald Trump might be correctly intuiting a slide on the right in America towards being more post-Christian and the evangelical wing in particular having less influence. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think you heard a lot of platitudes in the conservative movement uh, in prior decades about how the country was conservative. And there's um, just when, when people would talk about the silent majority, it wasn't necessarily uh, with the nuance, probably, that the silent majority doesn't mean that they're all pious Christians, uh, but it means that they're sort of average people and average people are increasingly less religious. And Donald Trump knew that because he had a hit TV show that was watched by average people. Uh, and there are, you know, back when, before he was really a politician, there were, you know, pieces written about how popular Celebrity Apprentice and The Apprentice was with the black community. That this was like something that reached people across the sort of spectrum of the American experience. And uh, I, I do think there was a bubble it's almost hard not. I mean, you can't really blame people in the conservative movement for being in a bubble, but uh, they really were. I mean, I guess you can blame them for that sort of their job to, you know, if you say, you know, <laughs> if you say you understand the country and it's professionally your job to uh, be good at that, uh, then yes, I guess I can blame you, but it's hard. And I think that is what a lot of people lost is, um, you know, when the Dixie Chicks insulted George W. Bush and people were stomping on their Dixie Chicks CDs or burning them or radio stations were banning um, the Dixie Chicks, it sort of neatly fit into the stereotype. And I think Donald Trump at the time probably understood that wasn't a lot of born again uh Christians who were upset about, you know, the from the sort of Christian nationalist perspective, the Dixie Chicks, you know, just dis, being disloyal uh, to the greatest country on earth. It was sort of actually this populist outrage at wealthy celebrities trashing the country that is sending poor kids to war overseas, you know, people from their communities to Iraq. And here you have this like rich celebrity in, she was in London <laughs> talking trash about uh, the president. And I think if you had talked to Donald Trump at the time about that, he probably would have had a much more nuanced perspective than a lot of people in the sort of professional right would have back in, I think that was 2004. The culture war is really a class war. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that he's, he's, a, he's a rich guy, but his, his cultural instincts are working class. 
you know his taste like the fa- the famous picture of him with all the mcdonald's in the oval office right like he he doesn't have rich person tastes well he's kind of well that's not quite right he's 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 he has like a the taste of like a rapper mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's right, so right. well and I, yeah that's his whole persona he's helped me understand um that America is really aspirational. And so it's almost offensive to be Mitt Romney rolling up the sleeves of your Brooks Brothers, uh, you know, $200 Oxford when you go to a factory. Uh, mm-hmm. Wear your suit. Wear a tuxedo for all everyone cares. All those guys mm. ha- want to, they admire you because there's, there's sort of nothing more American than owning your success and sort of being an, a, a business person, an entrepreneur. And, you know, the, the legitimacy of Donald Trump, who got big loans from his dad's claim to be an entrepreneur is another thing, but that sort of public perception of him. Um, and Mitt Romney could have tapped into that way better than he did. I mean, talk about somebody who was actually really very successful. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily agree that he should have been making all this money in the private equity sector. And I have very little ad- admiration for Mitt Romney. But the American people are you're like you're running a presidential campaign. It's it's so gamified and uh, it's become such a, an entertainment piece now that if, if he had you know not rolled up those sleeves and had had worn a suit and just owned it and not looked uncomfortable but looked totally at peace with himself he he may have had a better chance but the political Mm. sort of sanctimony of of it's just so fake and i think he understood that americans black white rich poor respect success more than anything and you shouldn't try to hide it and that false humility about your success is a kind of an upper middle class preoccupation Mm -hmm. That thing of being quietly wealthy but not, you know, making a fuss about it. I'm reminded of when Boris Johnson, who is kind of our, there are a lot of differences, but he, he's kind of our Trump in the space he inhabits. Although, of course, the difference is that he comes from um, multi-generational wealth. And, well, I mean, I know Trump does too, but like Boris Johnson is posh, right? He's Waspy. like, he's, he's yeah. yeah, he's aristocratic adjacent. But he also has this ability, probably not as good as, trumps but he has an ability to intuit what um working class people think and one of the things he got in trouble for when he was prime minister was spending a lot of money well his wife spending a lot of money on doing up the flat in downing street which is really quite a modest flat it's not as nice as 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 the white house by any means and they got all this like gold wallpaper and stuff and it was this enormous sort of scandal in the in the in the media class because it was seen as being spendthrift but actually the response that you got mostly when I was listening to talk tv or reading comments or whatever from 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 working class Brits was like of course our prime minister should have gold wallpaper <laughs> that's an like that that's an appropriate way to recognize the importance of his office it wasn't seen as being spendthrift it was seen as being appropriately aspirational as you say and I think that yeah I think there's a there's a gap in 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 that understanding of wealth and success between the media class and, and very many voters. And Trump did something that turned like decades of political, very self-serious political scholarship on its head when he went to the Iowa caucuses. And I think this was at the Iowa State Fair, which is the sort of, as a cliche, probably the most, um, it, it is the most cliched like presidential uh, event in campaigning. Trump gave kids helicopter rides. 
at the Iowa State Fair, <laughs> which Mitt Romney could have afforded to do, but would never have done because his stiff, you know, well-dressed consultants would have said, are you like, this is the dumbest idea I have ever heard. You are rubbing your wealth in the working class people of Iowa's faces. Um, and that sort of, it, there's this idea of the center of the country of kind of having that Protestant work ethic and sort of putting their heads down and being quiet. Um, but I don't think that's ever been right about America and maybe Britain as well. Like the, this is about the there's the beauty of capitalism is that success is a virtue because in all likelihood, it means that you worked your butt off and you kind of earned it. And that's not to say people who aren't successful didn't earn it, but if you are successful, generally you did. Um, and yeah, it, it worked out for you. So it's, it's just funny how with, you know, that probably took him 10 seconds to think of that idea and it upturned literally decades of very self-serious political scholarship about how to win Iowa um, in 10 seconds of a billionaire real reality television host uh, thinking it up on his own plane, probably. So the other, going back to Trump's relationship with the Christian right, and in, and indeed, uh, I guess, class and religion too, um, one of the other things that characterizes Donald Trump's personal life and also characterizes increasingly class distinctions in America and, and also in Britain and elsewhere is um is marriage right like I think we all know that the people the, the group of people who are most likely to basically live live like the 1950s but preach the 1960s are the upper middle classes who are getting married getting married later but nevertheless getting married staying married having children within wedlock etc whereas increasingly the poorer you are the less likely that is you are to do any of that and maybe that's another way in which yeah, in which Donald Trump is more appealing than, say, someone like Mitt Romney, who is this incredibly, like, upstanding patriarch. I believe he has 25 grandchildren. Mm -hmm. is, that, is something like that, right? Yeah. All within wedlock, et cetera. You know, like, absolutely perfect kind of Christian ideals as represented in his personal life. Do you think that one of the other things that makes Trump attractive, potentially, is that he is that he he's also a kind of... He's also flawed in that particular way. Hmm. Yeah, it's more relatable almost that he's not right. yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually really interesting. I, I haven't really thought of that before because there was the same thing with Ronald Reagan actually faced these questions about being divorced um, at a time mm. when also it was, you know, important for Republican politicians to be seen as this bulwark against the slide into mm. secularism. There's a lot of moral panic about it. And I would say probably reasonably so at the time in, in a similar way that there is now coming out of the 1970s, the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and it didn't matter for Reagan. Reagan was totally fine with it. And that was it was almost seen in Republican circles in the decades after Reagan that that was something Ronald Reagan really had to overcome. It's probably true that he, he really didn't have to overcome it because everyone was was starting like divorce was really becoming a normalized yeah, that was thing. when it was really spiking. Right. Yeah. 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 And you've, you've written about that. Like, that's exactly the time period when it would be relatable to people that someone had a divorce and almost almost comforting uh, or validating to people that he had had a divorce um, and to your point, that was not experienced in the same way by the sort of the political consultant class, which, um, again, my former editor, editor, Tim Carney, has called this the Lena Dunham fallacy that you, f you find. And the way that Girls Ends is a good example of this, her, her show that I actually really love. Um, they, they tend to have children. They tend to have children in wedlock, people in upper classes, um, while they prescribe to other people and normalize to other people things like divorce and premarital sex and uh, promise 
promiscuity and all of this stuff. Uh, the early seasons of Girls. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And then yeah. the the finale of Girls is one of the strangest and like ha- most haunting pieces of television. Um, I won't spoil it. Like it's a huge spoiler, obviously, but it, it ends in a way that sort of perfectly confirms this theory about how the upper class lives. And so I, I think a lot of people missed that, again, to your point, um, in a way that Trump totally exposed with very little thought or effort. <laughs> Mm. And no shame. Not not an ounce of it. He was leaking it to the tabloids, famously. Um, Was leaking his own exploits to the tabloids and was profiting off of that. And he's the most shameless when it comes to adultery and divorce um, and didn't pretend to be anything otherwise. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>